0: Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. Arundhati Roy accepted the 45th European Essay Award on September 12, 2023. In her acceptance speech, Arundhati Roy calls out the fascism of the Modi government in India and provides grueling examples, both corporate and communal. Arundhati Roy's conclusion though, is that however grim the situation is, please know that there is a tremendous fight back. Here is Arundhati Roy's acceptance speech.
1: As a writer, I can only hope that my writing will bear witness to this very dark chapter that is unfolding in my country's life. And hopefully the work of others like myself lives on and it will be known that not all of us agreed with what is happening. My life as an essay writer was not planned, it just happened. My first book was The God of Small Things, published in 1997. That happened to be the 50th anniversary of India's independence from British colonialism. I just wanted to say one thing which is not in the text. Quite a few uh, of the speakers made a reference to a character in The God of Small Things called he was, um He was my uncle, really, he was a real person. A road scholar who became a pickle factory manager in this little town he was like my father to me and he died four days ago and I uh, was very sad that I couldn't go for his funeral but I told my family that you know if you think that he's going to be present At his own funeral, he won't be because he'll be here with me in the audience because he knew every single word that I ever wrote, almost by heart. So he is here sitting somewhere between you. It had been eight years since the Cold War had ended and Soviet communism had been buried in the rubble of the Afghan-Soviet war. It was the beginning of the US-dominated unipolar world in which capitalism was the uncontested victor. India aligned her, realigned herself with the United States and opened her markets to corporate capital. Privatization and structural adjustment were the anthem of the free market, and India was taking her place at the high table. But then in 1998, a BJP-led Hindu nationalist government came to power, and the first thing it did was to conduct a series of nuclear tests. They were greeted by most people, including writers, artists, journalists, in the language of virulent chauvinistic nationalism. What was acceptable as public discourse suddenly changed. At the time, having just won the Booker Prize for my novel, I had inadvertently been cast as one of this aggressive New India's cultural ambassadors. I was on the cover of major magazines, and I knew that if I didn't say something, it would be assumed that I agreed with all of this. I understood then that keeping quiet was as political as speaking out. I understood that speaking out would be the end of my career as the fairy princess of the literary world. But more than that, I understood that if I didn't write what I believed, regardless of the consequences, I would become my own worst enemy and would probably never write again. So I wrote, to save my writing self. My first essay, The End of Imagination, was published simultaneously in two major mass circulation magazines. I was immediately labeled a traitor and anti national. I received those insults as laurels no less prestigious than the Booker Prize. It set me off on a long journey about dams, rivers, displacement, caste, mining, civil war a journey that deepened my understanding and entwined my fiction and non-fiction in ways that they can no longer be separated. I will read a brief excerpt from one of the essays in my book, Azadi, which is about how these essays live in the world. It's called The Language of Literature. So this is the quote. When the essays were first published, first in mass circulation magazines and then on the internet, And finally, as books, they were viewed with baleful suspicion, at least in some quarters, often by those who didn't even disagree with the politics. They sat at an angle to what is conventionally thought of as literature. Balefulness was an understandable reaction, particularly among the taxonomy inclined, because they couldn't decide exactly what this was, pamphlet or polemic, academic or journalistic writing, travelogue, or just plain literary adventurism. To some, it simply did not count as writing. Oh, why have you stopped writing? We're waiting for your next book. Others imagined that I was just a pen for hire. All manner of offers came my way. Darling, I love that piece you wrote on the dams. Could you do one for me on child abuse? This actually happened, actually happened, and I said to her, for or against. I was sternly lectured, mostly by upper-caste men, about how to write, the subjects I should write about, and the tone I should take. But in other places, let's call them places off the highway, the essays were quickly translated into other Indian languages, printed as pamphlets, distributed for free in forests and river valleys, in villages that were under attack, on university campuses where students were fed up of being lied to because these readers out there on the front lines already been singed by the spreading fire had an entirely different idea of what literature is or ought to be. I mention this because it taught me that the place for literature is built by writers and readers. It's a fragile place in some ways, but an indestructible one. When it's broken, we rebuild it because we need shelter. I very much like the idea of literature that is needed literature that provides shelter, shelter of all kinds. Today, it's unthinkable that any mainstream media house in India, all of whom live on corporate advertisements, would publish essays like this. In the last 20 years, the free market and fascism and the so-called free press have waltzed together to bring India to a place where it can by no means be called a democracy. In January this year, two things happened that served to illustrate this in a way that nothing else probably could. The BBC broadcast a two-part documentary called India, the Modi Question. And a few days later, a small US firm called Hindenburg Research, which specializes in what is known as activist short-selling, published what is now known as the Hindenburg Report, a detailed expose of the shocking wrongdoings of India's biggest corporation, the Adani Group. The BBC Hindenburg Moment was portrayed by the Indian media as nothing short, of an attack on India's Twin Towers, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and India's biggest industrialist, Gautam Adani, who, until recently, was the world's third richest man. The charges laid against them are not subtle. The BBC film implicates Modi in the abetment of mass murder. The Hindenburg Report accuses Adani of pulling off the largest corn in corporate history. On August 30th, the Guardian and the Financial Times published articles based on incriminating documents obtained by an organized crime and corruption reporting project that further substantiate the Hindenburg report. Indian agencies and the Indian media are in no position to investigate or publish these stories, and when the foreign media does, it's easy then in the current atmosphere of pseudo-hyper-nationalism to portray it as an attack on Indian sovereignty. Episode 1 of the BBC film is about the 2002 anti-Muslim pogrom which raged through the state of Gujarat after Muslims were held responsible for the burning of a railway coach in which 59 Hindu pilgrims were burned alive. Modi had been appointed, not elected, chief minister of the state only a few months before the massacre. The film is not just about the murdering, but also the 20-year journey that some victims made through India's legal system, keeping the faith and hoping for justice and political accountability. It includes eyewitness testimonies, most poignantly from Imtiaz Pathan, who lost 10 members of his family in the Gulberg society massacre, in which 60 people were murdered by a mob, including a former member of Parliament, Ehsan Jafri, who was dismembered and then burnt alive. He was a political rival of Modi's and had campaigned against him in a recent election. It was one of several similarly gruesome massacres that took place over those few days in Gujarat. One of the others, not in the film, was the gang rape of 19-year-old Bilkis Bano and the murder of 14 members of her family, including her three-year-old daughter. Last August, on Independence Day, while Modi addressed the nation about the importance of women's rights, his government, on that very same day, pardoned the rapist murderers of Bilkis and her family, who had been sentenced to life imprisonment. They had spent most of their time in jail, out on parole, and now they are free men They were greeted with garlands outside prison and are now respected members of society and share the stage with BJP politicians in public programs. The BBC film revealed an internal report commissioned by the British Foreign Office in 2002, so far unseen by the public. The report estimated that, quote, at least 2,000 people had been murdered. It called the massacre a pre-planned pogrom which bore and i quote all the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing it said reliable contacts had informed them that the police had been ordered to stand down and it laid the blame squarely on modi's door at modi's door after the pogrom the us denied him a visa but modi won three consecutive elections and remained gujarat's chief minister until 2014 and the ban was remo- revoked After the program, his uh, visa was revoked, and then the ban was revoked after he became Prime Minister. The Modi government banned the film. Every social media platform uh, uh, complied with the ban and has taken down all links and references. That means Twitter, Facebook, all these people just agreed to take it down. Within weeks of the film's release, the BBC's offices were surrounded by the police and raided by tax officials. The Hindenburg report accuses the Adani group of engaging in brazen stock manipulation and an accounting fraud scheme, which, through the use of offshore shell entities, artificially overvalued its key listed companies. According to the report, the Adani's companies are overvalued by more than 85%. Modi and Adani have known each other for decades. Their friendship was consolidated after the 2002 Gujarat pogrom. At that time, much of India, including corporate India, recoiled in horror at the open slaughter and mass rape of Muslims that was staged on Gujarat's streets by vigilante Hindu mobs. Adani stood by Modi and with a small group of Gujarati industrialists set up a new platform of businessmen. They denounced Modi's critics and supported him as he launched a political career as Hindu Hriday Samrat the emperor of Hindu hearts, and so was born what is known as the Gujarat model of development, violent Hindu nationalism underwritten by serious corporate money. In 2014, after three terms as chief minister of Gujarat, Modi was elected prime minister of India. He flew to his swearing-in ceremony in a private jet with Adani's name emblazoned across the body of the aircraft. In the nine years of Modi's tenure, Adani became the world's richest man. His wealth grew from $8 billion to $137 billion. In 2022 alone, he made $72 billion, which is more than the combined earnings of the world's next nine billionaires put together. The Irani group now compl- uh, controls a dozen shipping ports, that account for the movement of 30% of India's freight, seven airports that handle 23% of India's airline passengers, and warehouses that collectively hold 30% of India's green. It owns and operates power plants that are the biggest generators of the country's private electricity. Yes, Adani is one of the world's richest men, but if you look at their rollout during elections, the BJP is not just India's, but perhaps even the world's richest political party. In 2016, they introduced the scheme of electoral bonds to allow corporations to fund political parties without their identities being made public. It has become the party with by far the largest share of corporate funding, so it looks very much as though India's twin towers have a common basement. Just as Adani stood by Modi in his time of need, the Modi government has stood by Adani and refused to answer a single question raised by members of the opposition in parliament, going so far as to expunge their speeches from the parliament record. Within days of the Hindenburg BBC moment, after a warm and productive, warm and productive meetings Prime Minister with, uh, with Prime Minister Modi, Joe Biden and President Emmanuel Macron announced that India would be buying 470 Boeing and Airbus aircraft. Biden said the deal would create over a million American jobs. The Airbus will be powered by Rolls-Royce engines. For the UK's thriving aerospace sector, PM Rishi Sunak said, the sky is the limit. In July, Modi traveled to the US on a state visit and to France as as the chief guest on Bastille Day. Can you even begin to believe that? Macron and Biden fawned over him in the most embarrassing manner, knowing full well that this would be spun into pure gold for his election campaign in 2024, in which Modi will stand for a third term. There is nothing they would not have known about the man they are embracing. They would have known about Modi's role in the Gujarat pogrom. They would have known about the sickening regularity with which Muslims are being publicly lynched, how some lynchers were met with garlands by members of Modi's cabinet, and the process of Muslim segregation and ghettoization. They would have known about the burning down of hundreds of Christian churches by Hindu vigilantes. They would have known about the hounding of opposition politicians, students, human rights activists, lawyers, and journalists, some of whom have received long prison sentences, about the attack on universities by police and suspected Hindu nationalists, the rewriting of history textbooks, the banning of films, the shutting down of Amnesty International, the raid on the BBC, the activists, journalists, and government critics placed on mysterious no-fly lists, and the pressure on academics, both Indian and foreign. They would have known that India now ranks 161 out of 180 countries on the World Press Freedom Index. Like now, at the G20, can you imagine that the American press corps arrived, and they were not allowed to do a press conference? And Biden agreed to it. And then he went to Vietnam and did a press conference about the, the press conference in I mean about the G twenty in India because Modi in nine years has never addressed a single press conference. He will not speak to the press. They would have known about the sword wielding violent Hindu vigilante mobs who regularly and openly call for the annihilation of Muslims and the rape of Muslim women. They would have known about the situation in Kashmir, which beginning in 2019 was subject to a months-long communication blackout, the longest internet shutdown in in a democracy, and whose journalists suffer harassment, arrest, and interrogation. They would have known about the Citizenship Amendment Act passed in 2019, that barefacedly discriminates against Muslims, the massive protests that it touched off, and how those protests only ended after dozens of Muslims were killed the following year by Hindu mobs in Delhi, which incidentally took place while Donald Trump was in town, and he said not a word. They would have known about how the Delhi police forced grievously injured young Muslim men who were lying on the street to sing the Indian national anthem while they prodded and kicked them, and one of them died subsequently. They would have known that at the same time they were fating Modi, Muslims were fleeing a small town in Uttarakhand in northern India after Hindu extremists marked X on their door and told them to leave. There is open talk of a Muslim free Uttarakhand. They would have known that under Modi's watch, the state of Manipur in India's northeast has descended into a barbaric civil war. A form of ethnic cleansing has taken place. The center is complicit, the state government is partisan, and the security forces are split between the police and others with no chain of command. The internet has been cut. News takes weeks to filter out. Still, the world's powers choose to give Modi all the oxygen he needs to destroy the social fabric and burn India down. To me, this is a form of racism. They claim to be Democrats, but they are racists. They, do not, they don't believe their professed values should apply to non-white countries. It's an old story, of course. Democracy for, uh, for themselves and fascism or whatever else you want for the non-white world, it doesn't matter to us. We will fight our own battles and ultimately we will win our country back. However, if they imagine that the dismantling of democracy in India is not going to affect the whole world, they must indeed be delusional. For all those who believe India is still a democracy, these are few of the events that happened just over the last few months. And this is what I meant when I said we have moved into a different phase. The time for warning is over, and we must fear sections of the people as much as we fear our leaders. In Manipur, where the civil war rages, the police handed over two women to a mob to be paraded naked through a village and then gang-raped. One of them watched her young brother being murdered before her eyes. Women who belong to the same community as the rapists have stood by the rapists and even incited their men to rape. In Maharashtra, an armed police railway protection force officer walked down the corridor of a train, shooting Muslim passengers, killing them, and calling on people to vote for Modi a hugely popular hindu vigilante often photographed hobnobbing with politicians and policemen called on hindus to participate in a religious march through a densely populated muslim majority settlement and he remains at large while that whole settlement burned the response of the state to This, to the Muslim residents protesting against that Hindu procession, going through, burning, killing the Imam, has been to bulldoze the houses of all the poorest Muslims. The Prime Minister had nothing to say about any of this. It's election season. Next May there'll be a general election. It's all part of an election campaign. We are braced for more bloodshed, mass killing, false flag attacks, pretend wars, and anything to further polarise an already polarised population i just watched a chilling video in a classroom of a small school where the teacher makes a seven-year-old Muslim child stand by her desk and asks the rest of the students, Hindu boys, to come up one by one and slap him. She admonishes those who haven't hit him hard enough. The only action taken so far has been that the Hindus in the village have pressurized the Muslim family not to press charges. The Muslim boy's school fees have been refunded and he has been taken out of school. What's happening in India is not that loose variety of internet fascism, it's the real thing. We have become Nazis, not just our leaders, not just our TV channels and newspapers, but vast sections of our population too. Large numbers of the Indian Hindu population who live in the US and Europe and South Africa support the fascists politically as well as materially. For the sake of our souls and for those of our children and our children's children, we must stand up. It doesn't matter whether we fail or succeed. That responsibility is not on India alone. Soon, if Modi wins in 2024, all avenues of dissent will be shut down. None of you in this hall must pretend that you didn't know what was going on. If you permit me, I will end by reading a section from my first essay, The End of Imagination. It's a conversation with a friend about failure and my personal writer's manifesto because you know I I keep saying I get awards but in truth I'm a failure you know because what one has written and written and written and yet the situation gets deeper and harder and more violent and frightening but uh, it is this uncle of mine who died who taught me when I was three the importance of failure we were very small and he showed me some cheap bobble and he said, Do you want this? I said yes. He said, I'll give it to you if you fail. And I began to think about what was so interesting about failure. Anyway, so this is a quote from from this, my first political essay. It's a conversation with a friend in New York. I said to her, in any case hers was an external view of things, this assumption that the trajectory of a person's happiness or let's say fulfillment had peaked and now must because she had accidentally stumbled upon success. It was premised on the unimaginative belief that wealth and fame were the mandatory stuff of everybody's dreams. You've lived too long in New York, I told her. There are other worlds, other kinds of worlds, other kinds of dreams, dreams in which failure is feasible, honorable, sometimes even worth striving for worlds in which recognition is not the only barrier of brilliance or human worth. There are plenty of warriors that I do and love, people far more (coughs) valuable than myself who go to war each day, knowing in advance that they will fail. True, they are less successful in the most vulgar sense of the word, but by no means less fulfilled. The only dream worth having, I told her, is to dream that you will live while you're alive and die only when you're dead. Which means exactly what, she asked. I tried to explain, but didn't do a very good job of it. Sometimes I need to write to think, so I wrote it down for her on a paper napkin, and this is what I wrote. To love, to be loved, to never forget your own insignificance, to never get used to the unspeakable violence and the vulgar disparity of life around you to seek joy in the saddest places, to pursue beauty to its lair, to never simplify what is complicated or complicate what is simple, to respect strength, never power, above all to watch, to try and understand, to never look away and never, never to forget. Let me thank you once again for the honor of this award. I love the part in the prize citation in which it says Arungati Roy uses the essay as a form of combat. It would be presumptuous, arrogant, and even a little stupid of a writer to believe that she could change the world with her writing, but it would be pitiful if she didn't even try. Before I go, I just want to say this, this prize comes with a lot of money, It will not stay with me. It will be shared with the very many impossibly courageous activists, journalists, lawyers, filmmakers, who continue to stand up to this regime with almost no resources. However grim the situation is, please know that there is a tremendous fight back. Thank you.
0: That was Arundhati Roy's acceptance speech at the 45th European Essay Award on September 12 this year. And that's all we've got time for today. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kungeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.